Hello, friends. Welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Psalms and the steadfast love of God. We've been exploring the intricacies of God's covenant love for His people and learning what it means to pour out our hearts to Him. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Dr. Rasmussen and Liz Reed. Aaron, tell us a little bit about how you, Dr. Rasmussen, and Liz know one another. So Liz and I started seminary a couple years ago together, and immediately I knew she was the kid in class I wanted to sit beside that was always prepared, had all her notebooks and colored pencils and stuff out and ready. So she helps keep me on track and she's just become a dear friend through seminary. And now we get to work together and just doing gospel ministry together. It's been a delight. And Dr. Rasmussen is one of my professors and he has taught us so much about Hebrew and we're in the midst of Greek. It's still just in the very baby stage of learning all of that, but I have a love of linguistics and cultural anthropology and it's just been a delight that he comes in and tells me about these biblical languages and gives me the cultural context that I needed to help better love and understand the scripture. So Basically, anything insightful or interesting I've said on this podcast is 50-50. I probably learned from you, Dr. Rasmussen. Thank you for uh, teaching me. And it's been a delight. Well, I love that connection. Liz, I like seeing your face as you're sitting over there. Aaron's saying all those kind things about you, and you're just gently shaking your head from side to side. Like, <laughs> no, not me. But yes, you. And Dr. Rasmussen, it really is a privilege to have you on today. It's great to be here. All right, y'all, we're going to answer our first things first question like we always do at the beginning of every podcast. You're going to answer the question, but before you do, you're going to tell us a little bit more about yourselves. And the first things first question for today is describe the first time you learned to ride a bike. And Dr. Rasmussen, you kick us off. Okay, a little bit of bio about myself. I'm a PCA pastor. Um, I've planted two PCA churches back in the day as a younger man, and in 2005, after a pastoring my second church plant for 11 years. I resigned, went to Scotland to work on a PhD in Old Testament and to teach homiletics while I was there. And now I teach in three different seminaries. I teach here at City View Seminary in Augusta. I teach at Metro Atlanta Seminary in Atlanta. And then I also, I'm an administrator for Hope Russia, which is a theological seminary and church planting partnership, very closely PCA-related, very closely linked with MTW Russia, Mm. and we're headquartered in St. Petersburg, and I handle the U.S. side of that ministry, which is the funding side. It's the budget, it's the board of directors, it's supporting churches, because Russians are, are quite poor, and the education that we provide is all at no charge. So I'm married. We have two adult sons, two little granddaughters. And we live in Athens, Georgia, so it's perched in between Augusta and Atlanta, so it lets me teach in both of these wonderful seminaries. And I don't remember the actual event of my first riding of a bike, but I knew it was in Bellevue, Washington when I was a little boy, probably about five years old or four and I remember I had this cool bike. Back in the day, bikes used to have this thing sort of looked like it almost had a gas tank on the top. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and so I thought, and it had fenders, and yeah. I just thought that I was the coolest with, with that bike. But <laughs> I don't remember the exact first experience. You just remember great. riding it and mm-hmm. feeling feeling great about I it. I do. And riding it fast, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Downhill. Downhill. Totally. Yeah. What about you, Liz? Well, I am Liz Reed. I was a fourth grade teacher before getting to come to work 
with you guys here at First Prez. I started working here back in maybe March. No, no, I started attending here back in maybe March, but we um, got hired here in June. And my husband, Andy, is the pianist here at First Prez. And I am at the seminary with Aaron and love working with the ladies here at the church. Don't remember, just like Dr. Raz said, I don't remember how I learned to ride my first bike or that experience, but I do remember that my first biking experience that I do remember was I was about three, took off riding down a busy road next to our house and lived to tell the tale. Oh, wow. But I believe that I couldn't sit for a couple of days after that once my mom found out. Oh, so no, Liz. That's my memory <laughs> of bike riding. Like a busy highway kind yes, of thing. You scared like her biggie. to death and yeah, she made sure that never happened again. That's the part I remember. Too fun. Okay. I don't remember my first bike ride either, but I'm going to tell about my most momentous bike ride. So Brad and I met at UGA and I pulled up classically late in the classic city on my 50 pound road bike that I was so proud of. I bought at a thrift store. It was amazing. Had like, you know, the classic stickers from all around Athens stuck on it. It was so fun. I actually still have it. You want it? I know you're a big biker. It's actually, yeah, you could probably get your top speed on that one. If I'm going downhill. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Brad and I met because I was riding bike and was late to class and we coincidentally ended up sitting beside each other and um, that was how we met. So it was just a special memory of because of me riding a bike across town uphill, because if you've been to Athens, you know, like the campus is uphill in both ways. I bet that he saw you roll in on that bike and he made sure he sat by you in class. (laughs) I don't remember exactly the very first time I learned to ride a bike, but I do remember that my dad taught me. And I think I remember a series of uh, times that I was taught. And I remember just his method was very much he would run alongside and he would hold on to the back of that bike seat. And as long as I knew that he was holding on, I felt free as the wind. But the thought that he would let go, you know, when you're first learning to ride, even if you're doing fine and they let go, you just topple over because you think I can't do this by myself. So just that steady encouragement. And pretty soon he's run along and he doesn't tell me he lets go and you're riding and you just feel like I have done it. I have accomplished something. So and it is very it's so fun when you learn, of course, to do something like ride a bike and you feel free as the wind and you have a great time. And that's the case with a lot of things we learn in life. The learning is a little tricky sometimes. And it's so helpful to have somebody alongside of us who's pushing us along until they sort of let us go and fly on our own. And so it's so great when people come alongside of us, even in the study of the word, to show us new things, to teach us new things, and to give us an enjoyment that we wouldn't have on our own. And so, Dr. Asmussen, that's part of what we're excited about having you here today, just hearing your long-term study of the word at the different places, the different ways you've done it, the different knowledge that you'll have that you bring to particularly what we're looking at today, which would be the Psalms of Ascent. And we have been in the past on our podcast just talking about one psalm at a time, but today we're going to be talking about four different psalms. And for each psalm, we're going to be basically saying, what is the theme What is the application? Uh, Dr. Rasmussen is going to talk about both of those things for all of those psalms. And Liz and Aaron are going to comment as we go along of just about what those psalms have meant for them personally. We're going to start out with Psalm 121, and we're going to give Psalm 121 a little bit more time because it has a special place, right? It's got a unique location in that collection of the Ascent Psalms, yeah. 
If you're listening and you don't have your Bible open in front of you, I would really encourage you to open your Bible and to read these Psalms, either hit the pause button and read them and then come back to this conversation or just have your Bible open and look at it as you go along. We're going to talk about where Psalm 121 fits into the equation with the Psalms of Ascent and how its location contributes to its message. And so why don't you start out by talking about that, its main theme and what makes it a little bit special? Well, that's great. That's great. Let's take a three-stage look then at Psalm 121. The first stage, the psalm by itself, we'll check out what the psalm text itself says. And then second, we'll look at that message from the psalm text in the light of the superscription of the psalm, the heading of the psalm, because the headings, the psalm headings were added after the psalms themselves had been written. And then third, we'll take what we've collected so far and look at the psalm's placement within the collection of the ascent psalms, because Psalm 121 fits into a sequence of the first three psalms in the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120, 121, and 122. So the third step, we'll see how this sequence contributes to the message. So first, let's look at the psalm text itself, and we can see there's a travel motif throughout Psalm 121. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 121 a traveler's hymn, fitted for one who sleeps upon the tented field. So we first see this in verse 3, where the literal Hebrew is, may he not allow your foot to slip. So we're on a trail, and there's rocks and roots sticking up, and we don't want to trip or stumble. Verse 5 mentions a shade, and verse 6 mentions the sun. So we're traveling out under the hot Middle Eastern sun with no A.C., And exposure to a desert sun can be really dangerous. And then at the end of verse 6, we're camping out under the moon with all sorts of nocturnal dangers that might arise, raiders, wild beasts, who knows what. And then the final verse of the psalm says that Yahweh will guard your going out and coming in. And this here is probably royal imagery, a king leading his troops out of the city and then back into the city. So the psalm promises God's protection during a journey in the ancient world, a time when travel was pretty dangerous. Mm. So now let's look at stage two. Let's look at the message of the psalm and how it interacts with the heading, A Song of Ascents. So the psalm is about a journey, and to ascend is to be on a journey. Yeah. And the question is, what kind of journey? And there's really two different ways that this has been looked at. One way, the Septuagint, and later rabbinic tradition relate the Psalms of Ascent to the 15 steps of the temple, 15 steps ascending into the temple, and 15 Psalms of Ascent, so they would sing them step by step as they ascended up into the temple. But it turns out there's an older tradition that's probably more authentic and closer to the truth, and to understand the term Psalm of Ascent as meaning going up to Jerusalem from lower elevations. So throughout the Old Testament, when God rescues people from their sin and mortality and bails them out of trouble, that redemption is an ascent. It's an upward journey. Mm. And as many of us know, the history of Israel begins when the Lord rescues them from bondage from Egypt, and the Nile River Delta is flat as a pancake. The elevation of Cairo today is only about 90 feet above sea level. And the end game of God's salvation journey that started in the Egyptian lowlands was the Judean highlands headquartered in Jerusalem with an elevation that's about a half a mile above sea level. So 
God's free ticket to ride on his redemption railroad went from the flatlands of oppression and fear and sadness to the eternal life highlands of forgiveness and joy, a half-mile ascent. So it turns out, sadly, the reverse is also true, that rebellion and divine rejection is a descent. So pretty soon Israel rejected the Lord. They invalidated God's gracious covenant that he had made with them. And through their straight-up disobedience around 600 B.C., the Lord sent them a half-mile straight downhill to Babylon with an elevation that's about the same as Cairo, Egypt, an elevation of about 100 feet above sea level. So this means that they grew proud on their salvation perch, leaving the Lord in the lurch, bringing his frown. So he threw them down into punishment town. Some excellent poetry. Yeah. Like that. So when they began the return from exile, Isaiah describes this return as an Exodus remix. So they're redoing the Exodus coming back from Babylon. It's an ascent from the Tigris Euphrates alluvial plain back up to the Salvation Highlands, the Jerusalem area, the half mile high city. So in Ezra 7 9, the same Hebrew word ascent describes the ascent from Babylon back up to Jerusalem. So the Septuagint of Psalm 121 that we're looking at, it even has the word exodus in it, that the the tail end of the psalm, verse 8, the Lord will guard your exodus from now unto eternity. So it's a very big deal in the Old Testament because of the geography of the region that redemption is an ascent. Some scholars call the Songs of Ascent the Songs of Return. But wait, there's one more layer to it. Next, these dear folks who gave us the Old Testament, they said, wow, this being swept upward by the grace of God is such a joyful thing that we really should reenact it as often as possible. So they had three pilgrimage festivals per year where everybody scampered uphill to Jerusalem for three nationwide parties. So the Psalms of Ascent were collected as a manual for pilgrims on their way uphill to Jerusalem, either pilgrims ascending from Babylon or pilgrims ascending for one of the three pilgrimage festivals. So the journey theme in the psalm matches the journey theme in the psalm's heading. And now the third level, the third stage in our look at Psalm 121, the setting of the previous psalm, 120, is somewhere way out of town. Psalm 120, verse 5, points out two foreign places, Meshech, near the Black Sea, and Kedar, in the Arabian Desert. So if we look at the Psalms of Ascent collection as a whole, the collection begins with somebody out of town in a foreign place, stuck there in the lowlands of sadness and oppression. Viewed in this way, Psalm 120 is the departure psalm, It describes the place of departure from which we begin the ascent. Then Psalm 121 is about the journey, as we've pointed out. And then the psalm after that, Psalm 122, fits into this pattern pretty well because then it becomes the arrival psalm, the destination psalm, because in Psalm 122, we have shown up in Jerusalem. The first couple of verses there, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Our feet are standing within your gates. 
O Jerusalem. Well, that's so helpful just to have that background, even just a picture as you're describing the actual topography of the land and how that's brought into these Psalms. I do love how the Lord uses those physical examples, I don't know if you can call them examples, but realities with which to express the spiritual truth and meaning of things. And so to hear that description is very helpful. So as we look at these Psalms, we often ask this question in the Old Testament, what does Jesus mean in these Psalms? If, if we're talking about all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, how did these Psalms of Ascent do that? Well, the Psalms are hazy by design. They are, they're elusive rather than specific, but best we can tell if we trace many of the psalms back to their original worship use, their temple worship use, many of the psalms were written oftentimes where the original speaker was a king. The I in the psalm was a king. So Psalm 121 is God's promise to the king of Israel that he'll keep him safe through his perilous journey. The Hebrew verb shamar, to guard or keep or preserve, is in this little psalm six times. So God will protect the king throughout his perilous journey to Jerusalem. And the New Testament treats the whole Psalter as a book of prophecy about one particular king of Israel, Jesus, the ultimate king. When we ask the question, how many messianic psalms are there? From the point of view of the New Testament writers, the answer would be 150, all yeah. 150 of them. Yeah. So this hermeneutic of reading every psalm as being about Jesus happens from many different angles in the Psalter, Christ is sometimes the one speaking. Christ is the one spoken to or spoken about. So in Psalm 121, God the Father promises the King, Jesus, that he will guide him, protect him, keep him safe as he comes into Jerusalem. But wait, it seems like God didn't keep his promise because, of course, Jesus met a violent death there in Jerusalem. But God did, turns out, keep his promise to the King because he raised Christ from the grave. So God will keep his promise to guide us, brothers and sisters of the king, to the new Jerusalem when he returns, and he'll watch over us in the meanwhile. The Lord will preserve, protect your exodus from your sin and mortality, and your entrance into Christ's new heaven and new earth. And you'll be able to say with Jesus, like the opening of Psalm 122, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. But just like Jesus' journey, God's promise of a successful outcome doesn't mean that there'll be a painless or trouble-free trip in the meanwhile. Well, to have that view in mind where, of course, we tend to go to all of Scripture and to these Psalms that are so personable, or they express so much of what we resonate with human emotions and fears and those sorts of things, that it's not at all wrong to think about those personally? How do we think about this personally? How do we pray to the Lord personally? But when you think that these promises are addressed to Christ, and therefore they're guaranteed to us, it makes a big difference in how I think about that. So I appreciate that explanation. Liz, what did you think as you were re reading the psalm and as you're hearing, do you call him Dr. Raz? I do. All right. As you were hearing Dr. Raz give this explanation. It's a high school nickname, too, from way back. Okay. They Dr. called you Raz? Dr. Raz no, no, in high no, school? No, 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 Raz. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> or Dr. Would you, Mike. Was or... it a good nickname in high school? It was. Okay, good. It was. Just make sure we weren't bringing up any uh, old, <laughs> old bad memories. <laughs> um, well, first of all, 
when when we were taking Hebrew from the good doctor here, I was telling Aaron the other day, it completely changed everything for me as far as the way I looked at the Old Testament. And it, just that one series of courses that we went through, just due to the depth of what Dr. Rasmussen was telling us. So this psalm, I don't know if you've ever heard of the group called Casting Crowns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they did a song of quite a few years back that was based around Psalm 121 and uh, called this, I will praise you in this storm. I will lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And that's just kind of some of the words were changed around a little bit. But I remember that there was during the time that that song came out, that there was a little turmoil maybe going on in our lives at that point and thinking that and then reading through this and thinking about the fact that the God that is the maker of heaven and earth is our keeper, is eternally keeping us. And then hearing what Dr. Rasmussen is saying now about the fulfillment uh, that God fulfilled his promise and he kept Jesus and raised him and that we are part of that, that the importance that that has for me personally is, I mean, it's enormous. It, it solidifies for me. I rest in that, how he strengthens every day or me every day. Yeah, there's the way you described that going up, that coming out of, that he guards your coming out of sin, bondage, brokenness, and going up into that redemption that he guarantees and how practical that gets in some of the daily struggles of life. So I love how it's easy for us to read here in our English Bible and we can pick up on that elusive nature, like you were saying, of I see myself in this psalm and how you've invited us into the deeper conversation, just giving us that context of how those Hebrew people would have experienced this in the ancient areas. It's so helpful. I love that. That's one of my favorite things that um, just being a part of your teaching has brought me into the bigger conversation and helped me understand um, how all of the Hebrew scriptures are fitting together. So let's take a look at Psalm 123 and what the main themes are there and how we can apply that. Well, Aaron, Psalm 123 is different from the first three Psalms in the Songs of Ascent collection because Psalm 123 is a prayer. The first three Psalms talk about the Lord, but Psalm 123 talks to the Lord. And the big deal in this psalm, the interpretive key, is the contrast that shows up suddenly at the end of verse 2. Because up to that point, we're given no clue that this little psalm is actually a complaint or a lament. You don't see it till you get to the end of verse 2. Verse 1 acknowledges God as king, the one enthroned in the heavens. And with God enthroned in the heavens, the Assumption, of course, is that earth is his royal territory where he's supposed to be in charge. And this is a truth that Jesus assumed to be the case in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come on earth as it presently is in heaven. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, claimed the whole planet as his royal domain when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So after introducing God as king, verse 2 of the psalm continues with no hint of the trouble afoot. Verse 2 launches into a poignant explanation of 
dependence and submission and perseverant faith and looking to the Lord as a slave or servant looks to the hand or the power of his or her master. So we look to you, we depend upon you, O Yahweh. So it seems like all is well with the world. God is on his throne. We're looking to him as our provider and leader, and everything is cool. Until we encounter the final word in verse 2, which appears like scratching a turntable needle across the vinyl, where it says, until you'll be gracious unto us, until you'll decide to show us mercy. The assumption being things are awful right now in the world. Society at large has contempt for us and our lifestyle and our commitment to you. So we need to keep in mind that the Ascent songs are a post-exilic collection. And if we think of the pitiful state of affairs when we read books like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, that's the kind of political, economic, social situation underlying Psalm 123, where they're saying, we have no power or influence in the world as it should be because this is your kingdom territory, because this is your kingdom, but the ungodly are running the place. So it turns out that just like us, for the psalmist, there's a disconnect between the psalmist's faith commitments, what he or she believes and knows to be true about Yahweh on the one hand, and then what he or she sees happening in the world on the other hand. So Psalm 123 is a Maranatha psalm. It's a come Lord Jesus and heal this earth psalm, waiting patiently for Jesus to finalize his kingdom here in his kingdom territory. Yeah, and how helpful that is for any culture at any time when things are broken and you can't reconcile what you know to be true of the Lord sometimes and what you're experiencing now and to have words to put to that. And I loved how you said it's sort of a surprise. You can start out by saying you are on your throne. We look to you and yet we're waiting. We're waiting on that release from that scorn and contempt. We're waiting on the fulfillment of your mercy. And we know what that feels like. Liz, what did you think? How did you resonate with that song? Well, that whole idea of the waiting and Maranatha, Jesus come, definitely resonates for me. When we have ups and downs throughout our days and throughout our lifetimes, and we're looking around at how culture changes, and then we're we're just wondering, wondering how long. And and so, right, it was a, a surprise to turn there after verse two mm-hmm. and see that. Mm-hmm. But uh but it's a happy ending. Yeah, when I was looking at Psalm 123, I immediately thought Simeon and Anna were thinking about this when they hear about mm-hmm. Jesus coming, like this was the cry, their Advent cry. And I think it is appropriate for us this still to be our second Advent cry. I do have a question, though, before we move on to Psalm 126. Um, when you mentioned that the Hebrew people and they're moving toward Jerusalem for their festivals, is this are we still on that progression? Like in 123, how you were saying like 120 moved to 121 and kind of had that rhythm of moving up. Like in 123, are we still making that upward trajectory? Good question, Aaron. The collection of 15 psalms in the Psalms of Ascent, they don't all fit into that neat pattern. Okay. So it's just really cool that the first three psalms do, and it's Mm. pretty obvious that they do. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Just curious about that. Thanks. Let's move on to Psalm 126. And what are your thoughts on that one? Well, 126 is really quite similar to 123 because both of them are post-exilic psalms in this cultural situation where people are poor and they're oppressed and they're downtrodden. And both of them deal with this theme of unfinished business in God's kingdom. So in Psalm 126.1, it recounts the return from Babylon. God has shown up decisively in history to accomplish salvation, to restore the fortunes of Zion, to bring him back from exile. But like Psalm 123, in 126 verse 4, we see that the kingdom project is nowhere near complete because the community needs to have their fortunes restored again. Because even though God has shown up in history to restore his kingdom on earth, the kingdom project isn't complete. So verses 4 through 6 then use an agricultural, probably a drought metaphor, where the wadis, the the little river valleys are dry, to describe the in-between time between these two restorations. The first restoration that has happened already and the one that the psalmist is waiting for. So in the meanwhile, the community is sowing seed in the same way that those who sow seed wait for rain. The community waits for the completion of the kingdom restoration, and we know for sure that we'll be bringing in the sheaves as the old hymn. If you've heard of that hymn before, it comes from this psalm. So when we think about Jesus' parable of the sower, In its original setting, Jesus himself is the sower, and Jesus is the one sowing the seed of the word today. But then the sower parable applies to us. We sow with him. We are the sowers of the word. And we're the ones trying then to make new disciples and thereby change the world as we're living through a spiritual drought. And Jesus' return will be very much like a thorough, gentle, soaking rainstorm, restoring creation and finalizing his kingdom on earth. So just like the sower in the psalm, we're called to be faithful because Jesus will be faithful to return. So it's a lot like what Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Oh, I love that. It's just making me think about the fact that I planted some pansies out in a front bed and I'm not really a very good gardener at all. And so I was planting my pansies and it was almost dark and I'm trying to get them in and um, the soil's not all that great and I'm not all that great, but I would love to plant the pansies or something beautiful, right? About flowers. And then this morning I thought, you know, I really need to fertilize those. So I got out this old bag of fertilizer that doesn't smell all that great. And I went around and put it around all the roots because we're waiting for that rain today. And so as you're saying that, I'm thinking sometimes the fertilizer doesn't seem all that great. Sometimes my efforts don't seem all of that great, all that great, but I'm waiting. I loved how you said that gentle rain to come and soak in and produce something, something beautiful. So when we were looking at Psalm 126 and I hear you talking through it, I see that it's got that Advent flavor to it, but also that gospel sowing where we are bringing in the sheaves. And I do know that hymn. That is a good one. I remember listening to it on a radio program growing up. 
So I think when we read something like that, it it spurs us on to remember that Jesus is coming back for us. And like your Galatians reference, that we need not grow weary in doing good, that he's coming back to rescue us. He will restore the earth and make all things new again. And we, it is our joy and privilege to labor in bringing in others to that goodness. Absolutely, Aaron. We get to praise the Lord just knowing that his return is sure and how already Dr. Rasmussen pointed out that all 150 of these Psalms are pointing us uh, to the one who will confirm everything that they're pointing to, all of the hope um, that's coming our direction is guaranteed to us through Christ. And Psalm 150 ends the book of Psalms and it says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So Dr. Rasmussen, talk with us just briefly about how Psalms 150 is a fitting doxology, not just for the Psalms of Ascent, but for the book of Psalms as a whole. Great question, great question. Well, the Psalter ends with a five-psalm doxology collection. Psalm 150 is the last one, but it's 146 through 150. And these five psalms include the most common Hebrew word for praise, halal, like in hallelujah, it's in there 38 times in these psalms, and that's a lot. So pure praise is on purpose packed into the end of the Psalter. So this is why it's important for us to point out that most of the lament psalms are on purpose located at the beginning of the Psalter. Most lament psalms are in the first two books of the Psalter's five books, and most lament psalms conclude with praise. So most individual lament psalms, each one is a transition from complaint at the beginning of the psalm to praise at the end of the psalm. And since most lament psalms are at the beginning of the Psalter, this is what's cool. The concluding doxology collection, Psalms 146 through 150, tell us that the whole Psalter has been on purpose arranged to resemble this same transition that we see in individual lament psalms. The Psalter as a whole is kind of like a gigantic lament psalm transitioning from lament at the beginning to praise at the end. So the folks who gave us the Psalter want us to know that come what may, at the end of the day, God is worthy of praise. And I do mean the end of the day. Hmm. Because the Psalter's division into five books shows us that it was collected across a very long time span of about a thousand years, collected book by book being added to the collection, the Psalter's five books. When we think of books one and two of the Psalter, King David lived around 1000 BC. And the conclusion of the Psalter's second book, the end of Psalm 72 says that the prayers written by or for David are complete. So the first two books are looking back to around 1000 BC. Book three of the Psalter wraps up with Psalm 89, lamenting the collapse of the Davidic dynasty. So now we're in the sixth century BC. So at some point, the Psalter ended at book three. 
And by that point, they've been working on this Psalter for about 500 years. The scene between books four and five are post-exilic. They present a post-exilic situation. So now we're way into the Persian period. The Dead Sea Scrolls paint the same kind of picture. The Psalm Scrolls that were discovered at Qumran and at Masada tell a similar story. The scroll data tells us that books four and five of the Psalter weren't finalized until very late, around the time of Jesus. So the folks who gave us the complete Hebrew Psalter have been in covenant dialogue with Yahweh for a millennium. And folks, that's a long time. They're saying, hey, we've seen it all. They've experienced Yahweh as the Lord of history, as the bringer of both blessing and curse, both disaster and salvation. So in the Psalter's concluding doxology, Israel's writers, Israel's literary class is saying, look, folks, we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, disobedience, punishment, death, and life, salvation, forgiveness, God's sovereignty over history. So there's not much that can happen that's new to us, they're saying. And our conclusion is at the end of the day, at the end of the age, Yahweh will be faithful to his promises and Yahweh is worthy of praise. So the Psalter's concluding doxology is their assurance to us that what we've seen over the past thousand years will also be true in our lives today and in your church's life and in your future. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I know that you've been on this journey for 40 years. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. And I feel like every time I'm in your class or sitting at this table with you today, it's just I get a little bit further into the conversation that God is having with his people through his word. And I'm just very grateful that you will share that with us. And what you shared there at the end, it's just filled with so much hope and so much expectation that um, Jesus wins and he's coming back. I wouldn't have thought about just what they've seen in a millennium. That was a new, I hadn't thought about that. And what we, that there's nothing that they hadn't seen and yet they chose to answer with praise. It's it's significant. Very much so. Well, and I love too how you're showing that pattern of the lament and the rejoicing over some, like the, of the lament Psalms, most of the lament Psalms, and you see it over the whole of the Psalms. Like, I, I I think most of us wouldn't be able to pick that up on our own. Dr. Rasmussen and Liz, thank you for talking with Amber and me today. Listeners, if you want to see the faces of our guests today, check out our Women's Bible Study Facebook page at Women's Bible Study FPCA or find us on Instagram at First Pres Augusta Women. We'll be taking a break for the holidays, but we look forward to being back with you in January to talk about the book of John. Hope you listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of shining. To cheer it after the rain 